Welcome back to the trip. Uh, the podcast where four academics sit around in coffee shops and discuss great books and apparently laugh at each other, which is cool. Each episode <laughs> will feature a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads us to a broader conversation about race, culture, and politics, all the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops. And just FYI, we're at the Cahoots Coffee Shop right now in St. Paul because Sadly, 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 our favorite coffee shop for podcasting, the Lake Coffee Shop, has closed. R.I.P. Mm. R.I.P. R.I.P. So sad. So sad. Although, so this ironic thing where we were sometimes the only people there, which is probably also why it closed down. So, you know. <laughs> That's what I loved anyway. about it. <laughs> anyway. Except I, for that one time when we came and there was a poetry convention going on. <laughs> and then we're like, oh my God, where are they going to leave? They're reading poetry, damn them. Okay. Anyway, in case you're wondering who we are, <laughs> I'm Anita Chikatur, the host for the show, and I teach in the Department of Educational Studies at Carleton College. And since it is summer, um, I thought we could maybe say a little bit about sort of what we've been up to as we introduce ourselves. Um, so the one thing I want to talk about is that I attended a week-long Native Studies summer workshop for educators facilitated by Professor St. Clair at St. Cloud State University. And each year the workshop is hosted at a different indigenous community in Minnesota, and this year we were welcomed by the Kanchayapi, uh, which is the Lower Sioux community, which is, uh, the Kanchayapi is the Dakota name for the community. Um, I learned a lot, and I'm really grateful that the community sort of um, opened themselves up to us, and I was happy to learn more about the communities um, whose land I live on. Awesome. My name is Crystal Moten, and I teach African American history at McAllister College. Um, this summer, I've been doing a lot of traveling, um, but I think what I'll share is that um, I started a garden. Mm-hmm. And when I first started my garden, I I had so many grand goals, but now it's just whatever comes out of the earth will be fine (laughs) with me. And so I've harvested a lot of cucumbers and about four cherry tomatoes. So I'm waiting on some heirloom tomatoes and um, some banana peppers. Nice. And can I double check that I am still on the list to receive some vegetables? Yes. 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 Hopefully things will keep coming okay yeah i did yes. not know that there was a list <laughs> so i'm feeling a little bit you gonna be on it right now yeah. you can be on it i will add you to the list <laughs> okay there's, excellent there's not that many lists that i get at the top of but usually when it involves food i'm really there and there's also four cherry tomatoes as four of us just saying yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so i'm adriana estel i teach english and american studies at carleton college um, and like Crystal, right, there's been a lot going on this summer. I've been finishing up a couple of articles, getting the page proofs in, which is always great. Um, but more kind of, I don't know, difficult and good than that. I recently got back from a three-week trip to Mexico with my parents and my son. Um, and we saw a whole ton of family so that at the end of our trip in Guadalajara, we had this big 40-person dinner. And my son looked around and he said... I have more family here than I do in the U.S. And I said, yeah. So I'm really glad that he's learning that before going off to college. And I'm glad he got to meet everyone. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, my name is Todd Lawrence, and I teach in the English department at the University of St. Thomas. Um, As well as everybody else, I've been having a... They told me to get close to the mic. As well as everybody else, I've been having a a pretty busy summer. Um, 
But the best thing that's happened is uh, my book just came out yes. last week. Uh, the, a book I co-authored with uh, Elaine Lawless from the University of Missouri. It's called When They Blew the Levee, mm-hmm. Race, uh, Community, and Politics in Pinhook, Missouri. And it's about uh, a town in southeast Missouri that was destroyed in 2011 by an intentional act of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And we have been working with them for seven years now. Uh, collecting their stories and the book is full of people's stories not just of the about the disaster but of the history of the town before the disaster this is a um, mainly black town there were a few white families who lived there um, but mostly a black town and so the stories are really interesting and um, you know it's also about sort of uh, environmental justice uh, uh, issues of racial equity and those sorts of things so um, I'm not gonna like ask people to buy my buy book. it buy the book we will we will but it is on amazon and other it's on barnes and Noble. anywhere you can, or buy you can books. probably get it at independent bookstores you can definitely get it at independent bookstore go to like abooks.com or something like that or and, you and can Todd, go yes. what is it called again it's called when they blew the levy race community and politics in Pinhook, missouri yes. you can even go straight to the publisher university of mississippi press you can go to their website and buy it you want to cut out the middleman um, so there was that, and I got to go in May down to um, the Pinhook Day Homecoming, and we brought a copy, well, we only have one copy of the book at that point, but we brought a copy of the book, everybody signed it, oh, that's uh, awesome. we gave it to our primary collaborator, mm-hmm. Deborah Carver, who's the person who's been like, made this whole thing possible, and it was really great to see everyone. Um, they now have houses built by Mennonite Disaster Services and some volunteer Amish workers, and that uh, is a that's not in the book, but we're writing an article right now about that whole thing because that's a whole fascinating story as well. Mm. So I'll stop. Cool. Want. All right. Speaking of books, this is obviously a podcast where we talk about books. Um, so in this episode, which is our first episode in our two episode special on young adult novels, we're discussing Justina Ireland's Red Nation. Justina Ireland is the author of various young adult novels, and she's been really vocal on social media about how the field of children's literature in the U.S. has been overwhelmingly, disappointingly, and disproportionately white. So, for example, according to the study by the Cooperative Children's Book Center at the University of Wisconsin, out of the 3,700 books for children or teens published in 2017, just 340 of them featured children or uh, teens who were black, and only 100 of those were written by black authors. Um, so we're super excited to be discussing a book not not only features black characters, but also is written by a black author. Um, and before we dig in, just a reminder that when we discuss books, we will talk about everything. <laughs> so just consider this your perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alert. In other words, we're all about the spoilers and not about summaries. <laughs> so let's go. And I guess, um, you know, kind of what I did with Eve Ewing's book was kind of like, let's talk about the genre of poetry. And since we are actually reading a couple of young adult books, I wanted to start by asking all of you about sort of the genre of young adult literature and specifically, you know, why do we think um, Dread Nation, for example, is classified as young adult literature? And what does it mean for a book like this to be classified as such? I think that's a really good question. And I, I sort of thought a lot about that while we're reading these books. And I've read a I guess I've read a fair amount of YA literature, but I never sort of thought about, well, why is this YA literature and not something else? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, my, my question, I, I thought, like, is, are we talking about, is YA, YA literature because the characters are usually teenagers or they're the same age as the intended audience? 
or is it about the, the sort of content of it that it deals with issues or um, concerns of, of you know sort of teenage or young adult um, readers or is it I think as we were sort of talking about earlier is it something about the, the formal aspects of the book so uh, is the is the language simpler is it sort of less complicated but I think you could find books that that uh, push against that notion that sort of counter that notion that YA is about simple stuff or simple um, plots or simple mm-hmm. characterization or things like that. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, right. I mean, if it's like just about Should young, we say what young, we just did? <laughs> <laughs> we no. stopped because we heard a rumbling sound above us and we weren't And sure. Adriana was trying to be all like cool about it and just point and Todd's like, no. We're actually, talk we're about actually it. outside on the patio of Cahoots. There are a number of loud sounds, like the air conditioner <laughs> right next to us. We're covered by a big umbrella that's right above our heads, but it started to kind of like rumble or something. Yeah. I think it's just a little windy. Maybe yeah. a plane was coming over top of us. I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, I, I felt the cool air breeze, the right of the kind of maybe thunderstorm. Yes, it is kind of like a dark yeah. cloud coming over. Yeah. But we're underneath this thing, right? I think right? we're so good. We should be yeah. fine. Even we if it starts pouring yeah. rain, we're going to stick it out. I was also buying time because I feel like this I'm, is a really complicated well, right. question. Well, yeah. like part of it's like, okay, so then is Romeo and Juliet a young adult play? Like, because it's, it's about, about teenagers. teenagers. It's yeah. about, right? I mean, is it like, it's a new-ish genre? Is that true? But I was thinking about young adult, um, the genre in terms of not only the age of the characters, um, but also how the characters reason and make decisions. Um, because in both this, both Dread Nation and the book we're going to discuss in the next um, episode of the um, podcast, I find myself thinking, now, is this character making this decision because of their youth and, uh, and their life experience? Because I would make a different decision given my my age and my life experience. And so I wasn't so much thinking about um, the content, but so much thinking of, I was thinking more about the reasoning and the responses to the situations the characters mm-hmm. were going through and how age perhaps contributed to that. So. I would put a little bit of historical context into mm-hmm. our discussion. Um, and Anita, the, quest, the way you asked your question helped me think through this, right? So has there always been young adult literature? I mean, not quite in this form, okay. right? But there has, since the 19th century, been literature that's dedicated to kind of didactic purposes mm-hmm. for young adults, for children. So even Louisa May Alcott, for example, mm-hmm. was writing to a younger audience much of her fiction at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, the big shift, at least in the United States, came with Judy Bloom, mm-hmm. who was writing in the late 70s and the early 80s, um, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, um, and really importantly, Forever. Um, and the shift, you know, from the way I understand it as someone who's not directly in this field of young adult fiction, is that instead of merely kind of trying to, as an adult, write fiction that's supposed to inculcate certain values into like this young adult audience. The goal was to actually try to listen to young adults mm-hmm. to understand what mm-hmm. they thought their problems were, mm-hmm. to like have this problem solving that is occurring mm-hmm. like in a really organic way for them at that time to honor basically their their thinking and their um, and their growth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I grew up with like the Judy Bloom era of young adult fiction. Um, but with my son, like I feel like in the last seven years, there has been another shift in young adult fiction. Mm-hmm. So that you're seeing this like increasingly um, apocalyptic fiction, mm-hmm. young adult fiction, mm-hmm. um, which dystopian young adult fiction. Um, and you had that like in science fiction earlier, but really not in the same kind of way recognizing the uh, danger and violence that's wrought um, for the world, you know, by the world um, structurally onto young adult bodies, right, as they are growing up. Do you think uh, Harry Potter affected that? that Although yeah. that's not. I don't yes. know if that's, do you think that's dystopian though? Well, like no, but I think I'm, of like Hunger Games. But like, like oh, but you think just the genre. genre. I'm, I'm thinking genre and Harry yeah. Potter being yeah. two decades old. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, crazy. <laughs> but I mean, there's even, I was thinking of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, mm-hmm. and yeah. those mm-hmm. series. Like, um, I read the heck out of that when I was a kid, you know, and um, Me too. it does, so there's, there have been genre or uh, subgenres within the genre of YA. And maybe, and I think like you say, there's probably a point where it existed, but then people say, oh wait, this is a thing. And then of course, then there is the marketing, right? Like when publishers start to directly market certain books to a young audience. I don't know if you guys remember, or you guys might not be old enough, but remember those little... (laughs) As he points to Crystal and Anita, (laughs) not to me, not to me. Thank you, you thank you, Todd. As my peer. You you are, we are peers, we are peers. Thank you, Todd. You keep talking about your son and everything. (laughs) (laughs) None of us knows how old any of us are. But anyway, um, I I remember in in school, you used to get those uh, little sheets, you know, with all the books on them, and then you would go home and say, Oh, the Scholastic Scholastic. Order. Oh, I love those. So, I mean, that was amazing. And I loved it, but there was an element of marketing to that, right? Like, yeah. that was basically the scholastic publisher for free getting to put books right in front of your face in the classroom. Right. You go home, beg your yeah. mom for money. So, I mean, I think those things help to kind of shape um, young mm. adult and children's literature mm-hmm. genres um, as a place where publishers could make money. So, mm. now they're probably way more likely to publish a book like this. Like, um, so, what mentioned. about this, though, right? So, if I could get us to maybe think about what makes this a young adult novel, right? So we've ta- talked yeah. about a little bit of like, well, there's all these potential elements, right. right, that make it a young adult novel. So I'm curious about if we agree with this book being classified as young adult literature. And if I we do, do, okay, so why? Well, I do, but I don't, I think what I would say is, I agree there are things such as uh, young adult literature. I would classify this as that. But I think that, um, young adult literature can also sort of transcend that category, right? So does this book transcend that category I for you? I think in a way it does. I mean, obviously it has a, you, you have a teenage right. uh, protagonist, uh, the narrator, you know, that, that person, Jane, you know, is a teenager going through all the, a lot of the same issues that a teenager might be going through, even though she's living <laughs> in this really different world, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, negotiating friendships, mm-hmm. um, negotiating romance and trying to figure out what it means to love someone, uh, parent issues, although mm-hmm. they are really serious and, you know, very different parent issues, but they're parent issues nonetheless. Mm-hmm. School mm-hmm. over, you know, uh, uh, 
sort of overbearing uh, principals teachers and teachers. And yeah. And finally like saving the world. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which, as I was pointing yeah, out, is increasingly out. kind of like an actual teenage issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And saving I'm not, the world? yeah, saving the world. A- I'm, I'm not being snide or snarky, right? Like, I feel like there is a way in which both teens themselves and adults are increasingly going, okay, it's all going to hell in a handbasket, but at least there are the young people. But don't you think... It's not a good thing, mm-hmm. but I, this book buys into that. Can I propose also that teenagers always felt that way? Right. Yeah. And you always look to... Yeah. Period, right? yeah. That yeah. When you're 14, you think, yeah. holy shnikes, like yeah. this whole Our world... Change. What am I gonna do? Yeah, like right. it's so bad, it's so awful. Right. And the adults are all complicit. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. But so, the, is there something yeah. then about like why do we have youth? Is that because it allows us to use them as sort of this rhetorical tool, right? So this notion right. of like we can sort of see their decision making in this particular kind of way, right? We can sort of see them coming into their own. Yeah. And so maybe that does that kind of open up different kinds of possibilities, right? So if Jane was, you know, if this book had focused on I don't know who's one of the adults who's uh, the. Um, you know, uh, one of the teachers, one of the teachers, for example, or or one of the other people who are like involved in wanting to fight against sort of the system, right? Or maybe the Native American guy, for example, who's Mm -hmm. an adult, right? Mm -hmm. So like, why focus on Jane? Like, what does focusing on Jane allow us to like understand about, you know, shamblers and about like this alternate history of the Civil War? Um, I I would think first and foremost, it would be about the audience, right? If you're if you're writing for, if she's thinking this is going to be for a young audience, you would want your protagonist to narrative be someone that they could identify with. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I'm teaching literature in like a you know first year of a course, uh, one thing that students often say, especially the older the literature is, they they always say like I can't identify with this. I just I don't connect with these characters and blah blah blah. And you, what they really mean is like this narrator is not just like me. So the more that you that the the narrator is like them, the easier it is for younger readers to kind of connect. Not all, but I think some of them. Right, but how is that any different from let's say there was a you know, to kind of drop a straw person, right? Like a white male reading this and saying, you know what, I can't relate to Jane. She's a young woman, a young woman of color. Like she's not like me. The only thing we have in common is that we're both 17. Yeah, honestly, I, I don't think this is about identification um, or the possibility for identification. I think it is about the stories that are allowed to be told. Um, and it is about the way that youth are structured outside of uh, centers of um, power, right? So that is true um, both in the world and in the book, in the world of the book. Um, so that, and that works narratively really effectively because we are also outside of the world of power mm-hmm. in this book. Mm-hmm. So we're learning with Jane um, exactly how everything is happening and mm-hmm. the mysteries that she solves, we solve along with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's something about um, um, literature that is focused on adult stories that is so unconcerned with the life of teenagers. Um, with the life of children, mm-hmm. and so I have a student who's been working on a Mellon project. Uh, he started out wanting to really talk about children's voices and stories, and discovered that it was actually a really impossible project mm-hmm. because we write stories for children about children, and never do we ask children to actually like write stories that we can then easily get right that are say published. 
That's true sure. for this book too. It's a young adult yeah. novel written by an adult. Yeah, which I was kind of thinking about that when you were sort of saying about, you know, we get to see these ways in which young adults are making decisions, but it's like, mm-hmm. in some ways, it's like Justina Ireland's imagination of how, right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. as right. an adult, as, you know, how a teenager. Mm-hmm. But I mean, but isn't all literature or fiction an imagination of the author? Right, and so... An imagination of the author. Right, That's true. Yeah. yeah. We all have been you know, like, yeah. like it's not something she has. I mean, obviously, the the, the sort of specifics of the of the yeah. plot are something that ha- she hasn't experienced. But being she's younger, an experienced shambler, so we should. I'm gonna guess that she hasn't. Maybe. I mean, it depends on how you define shambler. Mm. I mean, can we just really quickly like say that when I first started reading this book? All I knew about it, because all Crystal had told me, <laughs> oh, don't she, said, me. No. she said it's a historical novel about the Civil War. It's got a young African-American female protagonist. I was like, that's cool. I don't usually like historical fiction, but I'm down for it. And so then I was reading, and I was reading the first prologue, and I'm like, oh, this is really interesting. I like the chance to understand better what this might be like. And I got to the end of the prologue where she says, I might have been a good girl if it had been the cards, but all of that was dashed held two days after I was born, when the dead rose up and started to walk on a battlefield in a small town in Pennsylvania called Gettysburg. Yes. Wait, weren't you like, wait, is she being literal I with this? I thought this was a metaphor for at least <laughs> another chapter. <laughs> because I couldn't fathom. <laughs> but it's not. So, But you were saying... What, what do we think? You're saying it is a metaphor, right? I mean, obviously, in the book, it's like they're real and they're zombies well, and they're yeah, coming the after you. And zombies are always yeah. a metaphor. Right. I mean, I'm not an expert <laughs> on zombies. No, but, but in I this mean, book, you, yeah, like, I mean, why have zombies? Well, I'm not entirely sure if I can pin it down in this book exactly. I mean, yeah. I think that the zombies are probably uh, represent the anxieties of, um, of society, of particularly white society. Mm about um, the unruliness mm. of free black people mm-hmm. and because the whole sort of um, kind of political impetus of those in power in this book during this time is to control black mm-hmm. bodies right mm-hmm. and, and native bodies too although yeah. that's true yep, to yep. a lesser extent mm-hmm. um, so I think in that way I mean zombies are always a specter of the thing that scares us or the thing that we don't want okay. to see yeah. um, in contemporary zombie movies they're usually like um, it can be about cities, you know, like the right. sort of roving masses of anonymous people mm-hmm. in cities, um, and um, there's been there's lots of tons and tons and tons of great sort of zombie uh, right. scholarship, and uh, you know, so I won't get into. Can, that. can I add on really quickly Definitely. to what you just said though, because I feel like here the fact that it's kind of like this the Civil War dead, right? It's the people who have died in battles who have started rising up initially. Initially, initially. Um, and then of course that they there's contagion possibilities. Um, it really pinpoints to the Civil War itself, right? As this kind of it, production of anxiety starts there um, over the uh, what's the word I want? Like whether or not the war was just, right? right? right. Whether it was being fought in the right ways. Right. Um, and I feel like actually that that is significant still now, yeah. right? Yeah, well, and I, yeah, and I find it interesting that in the in the book, because that happens, the war doesn't actually end, right? No, right. Exactly. It shifts. Right? Yeah. So it's kind of curious about that, uh, and also just generally, right? Sort of the parallels between like actual history and altered history. Right? I mean, she kind of makes a point to note the 
about the Native American boarding schools that didn't mm-hmm. offers note at the end. Uh, but also I was thinking about like industrial schools for blacks, right after like, uh, and then also kind of the and the syphilis sort of stuff, the Tuskegee experiment. Although that was later, I think that was like nineteen thirties, I want to say. But I was thinking about the vaccine that they get against the right. travelers and the mm-hmm. kind of experimentation, but also like the racial theory stuff. That's like all real. I feel like she was just like taking stuff from like the things that people were putting into people's mouths, like right. the curse of ham, the phrenology, right. the this notion of like polygenesis. So right. I was kind of curious about sort of the like where it breaks from sort of what actually happened, which is, you know, for example, the small world doesn't end in here. And like where it sort of is like very clear parallel, but even just like taking of history. Well, I mean, it, it felt like it to me in a way, and I'm right now I'm realizing, oh my God, the historian hasn't said anything yet. So like I'm gonna shut up really quickly after this. Yeah, where would we find out about that? Tell us about that. Um, for me, the, the way in which kind of like this battle that never finished, right? The civil mm-hmm. war that didn't end. There's a moment early on where mm-hmm. someone says, you know, there was this possibility, it might've been June. There's this possibility that when the shamblers rise, why shouldn't all human people get mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. against the shamblers, mm-hmm. right? And instead, it doesn't, it yeah. doesn't happen, right? Um, there is still this racial categorization, this willingness to sacrifice um, African Americans and Native Americans um, in mm. ways that are not just about um, maintaining uh, whiteness per se, but also a white capitalism, right? So it's a white racial capitalism mm-hmm. that we see getting developed really explicitly. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. And I think, you know, I, I don't think I could put, I could forward a kind of completely coherent and consistent theory because I don't think the book I think the book has inconsistencies in how it uses the shamblers from you know moment to moment Um, but I think you know you were saying this before um, the war doesn't end but there are these um, different interpretations of what the dead rising means right like when we get out to Summerland is it Mm -hmm. Um, the preacher basically says like we should have never fought that war. You know, the zombie, mm-hmm. the dead rising is basically like a punishment mm-hmm. for a war that we should have never fought mm-hmm. because we shouldn't yeah. have tried to change basically the way that things already were and should still be, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're right. trying to- Change the natural other, order of things. Right, yeah. right, right. And you got the survivalists and the egalitarian sort of right. still having that, mm-hmm. that fight or that debate even after the war is over. Mm-hmm. The shamblers are sort of, in his mind, are the result, the direct result of going against the laws of nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think as I was thinking about um, the Civil War, I, actually I wasn't so much thinking about the war itself, but I was thinking about the, the condition and status of black people and thinking about how that is um, changing or not changing over the course of the book. Um, and so thinking about particularly you know, historians who have written about um, you know, what happens after slavery and how, you know, what happens after slavery is slavery by another name. And so mm-hmm. um, wondering what Justina Ireland, what point she's trying to make about um, you know, what happens to uh, black folks or people of color, Native Americans, African Americans, as a result of, of the Civil War, right? Are mm-hmm. they still enslaved by what, by what means? How does the power dynamic change. And so that was what I was um, more so thinking about mm-hmm. than the Civil War specifically. specifically. Okay. Um, and, and so you, I mean, are you thinking that, I mean, that's basically what happens is that these young black people are taken right. and conscripted and forced to go to these schools 
just like right. you know, native people were mm-hmm. sent to boarding schools. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there's a kind of like this is kind of like um, dishonest kind of um, sheen to it, which is that we're training you for mm-hmm. work so that you can you know so you can support yourself and be a, a contributing part of society. But mm-hmm. it really takes away any choice that anyone has. They're really oppressive places. Um, and although Jane is a badass and has been trained to do to, to kill like a machine, um, she also is still struggling with her own notion of freedom and pushing back against this. Mm-hmm. I mean, she she realizes, I think, at some point that I'm basically a slave. Like that, I'm, we're being trained to be slaves, right? Right. Because I feel like it's not like they were being trained to kind of become these like elite, um, right. you know, force, right. right? They were being trained to become attendants to Service. like protect, actually, right. Right. the white rich right. Right. men to actually protect the status quo. Exactly. Right. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. But also right. made me think, just sort of, you know, maybe what commentary she's perhaps making on. Um, kind of like the number of people of color and poor people who are in the military now, right? It's, it's yeah. not exactly conscription, but, but one could argue I mean, this, if you have right? only limited economic options, yeah. Can we talk a little bit about why Jane is able to, to the degree that she does, rebel and resist? Um, because we see her gaze out on a number of her classmates who um, want to, you know, like like her, you know, want to do this learning, want to be an attendant, because it is the route where they're going to have a certain amount of control, even though it's not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but in whatever situation she's put, she's willing to take this risk to basically lose her status, right? Um, well, I think part of what I'm thinking about as you're asking that question is, I think we can't talk about Jane without talking about the colorism um, and the, you know, the the interracial hierarchy that's also going on with the book, within the book, because I think that's also um, part of what makes Jane able to make some of her decisions. She already sees herself as an outsider um, because of, you know, who she is and what she looks like. Um, And so since she's already an outsider, already sticking out, already unable to... um, fit in I'm not saying it makes her choices you know more obvious or apparent but I think she's grappling with that and what that means uh, for some of isn't there a particular element to it because her mother is white right Right. exactly she's not white well, I mean, well, <laughs> right. For most of the book, that's yeah. Right. yeah. Well, and I was thinking that it wasn't just that you know it's colorism, but also mm-hmm. like she grew up differently right. because of her, how her mom treated her. Right, mm-hmm. so she didn't grow up like most um, black mm-hmm. children probably would her have mom was on the a slave plantation, mistress, right? Like right. On the plantation, right. But the mistress of the plantation. But we eventually yeah. find out, uh, yeah. and she did she kill the father? Um, Jane did. Jane killed Jane. her father. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and but also that her mom is also. Well, is white and black. Right. Passing. Well, this is, this, is always a, this is like the great question. We're talking about racial passing here. Right. Yes. Right. And the, the, the question of racial passing to me is always, because I, I teach a class yeah. on race, literature of racial passing, and students will sometimes ask me, um, well, this person that's passing, aren't they white if they say they are? And you're like, well, no. Well, uh, yes. well uh, uh, no, they're not. Uh, well, according uh, to society, they're not, uh, but... Maybe. <laughs> yeah, know, I mean, so, like Catherine, pa- right? It was like the right, other one. Right. Who right. Passes. Passing itself calls into question the logic of racial categorization. Yes. Right? Yes. right. Right. And so these questions sort of are really, really difficult and complicated. Yeah. And this book, I mean, I don't think this book 
um, solves any. Um, <laughs> yes. I don't think the book solves any problems, this, uh, yeah. you know, um, issues necessarily, but it deals with these yeah. in really interesting ways. So I think that uh, that sort of double switch of thinking that her mother is uh, a white woman who's had an affair with a slave mm-hmm. and that she's the product of that mm-hmm. puts her in one particular yeah. position. Then realizing that no. Her mother is a black woman who took the place of her mistress when her mistress died on the on the way to meeting her fiance, yes. and so she's actually the daughter of a black woman and yeah. a white man. Yeah. Puts her in this whole other place. Yeah. She thought she killed her stepfather. She really killed her father, right? right. Biological, biological right. father, right? right? So these things are they change the way that she sees the world, exactly. And that is, I think, really significant because who, what we look like shouldn't change who we are but it can yeah. well it, it can it's because a, of legal and other things right there are all right? kinds of I ways mean, in which can, right yeah. right there used to be a time when like different states actually had different rules around what right. counted as quote-unquote black right? right so you could like literally move across state lines and right. change your racial category mm-hmm. legally at least right, right. right? whether right. or not you were able to pass is a whole different thing and then around right. social practice or you know you yeah. basically the the one drop rule or high blood descent is really what what was yeah. so if anybody knows you have right. any african ancestry you're black and if you are a white person who consorts with black people, you are basically black by contamination, right? right. So the, the the stigma of blackness is like a, a contaminating illness that you catch. It only takes a drop. Although the contort, um, <laughs> like being with black people, like I think that's interesting to think about, right? I mean, so her mom, right, sort of was doing it in the wrong ways, but also... Right on plantations, there was a lot of consorting, oh. Oh, um, yes. or you know, forcible consorting at yes. times. Right, right. But so it's, I think it's also interesting that it's like actually post slavery, right, where this notion of like associating with black people takes on a different meaning. I think. Well, right? I should, so like if you're on a plantation that looks different, maybe. I think I should have been more specific because I think that works mostly. This is we're getting into like really uh, sticky stuff, but it's mostly. In cases of sexual sexual contact between white women and black men, that that works. Ah. Not white men okay. and black women. Right. White men get to escape it. Exactly. Okay. It's as if they didn't. So I mean, it's like this thing where you know you, you have these scenes or you know historical moments. Whatever. You go into a plantation. And there are all these mixed race young slaves. Right. And the slave master's there, and everyone knows that they're his children. Right. But he acts, denies, okay. would never acknowledge that they are. You just live. In this kind of like fantasy, as if they are not. Right. Okay. Right. So he, the slave master, because he's a man, because it's a patriarchal society, he gets that. But if a, if a white woman were to have sex knowingly, people find out about it. She basically becomes black. She is. She would be cast out from yeah. society. Except that that was her mom, supposedly. But it was only a rumor, right? Ah. And nobody knows for sure, sure. exactly. And also, the stepfather right. uh, was dead. So she was mm-hmm. able to kind of take control Pro, of, yeah. of the farm. Mm-hmm. So in yeah. some sense, she assumes a kind of patriarchal role over the plantation, mm-hmm. which, despite the fact that there's rumors out there, mm-hmm. money, power, that kind of gives her the ability to mm-hmm. you know, not fall prey to those rumors, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. And maybe this is more with Captain, but it's also thinking about, right, so if what are the betrayals, right, not betrayals, but what are the ways in which maybe people can, you know, quote unquote tell that you're not white if someone actually be sympathetic to, like, mm-hmm. black folks, right? Mm-hmm. So there were these moments when, right, somebody would be saying something totally outrageous and Captain would want to react, 
I think Jane would be like, uh, you gotta like simmer it down because right. in your role as a white person, right. Like, right. you wouldn't actually right, 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 right. like critique whatever the critique mm-hmm. the preacher was saying. Mm-hmm. Was right. Saying. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of thinking about. So maybe it's also around that, right? So it's kind of this notion of like you can't actually ally yourself, mm-hmm. right? Well, it, and don't forget that the mother. I mean, the mother is in this really difficult position too, and she. She tries to kill Jane right. at one point, tries to drown her right. because existing in this kind of like situation where, where if people find out, blah, blah, all this stuff, you know, so, and of course it changes meanings when we then know that she's not white but black, right? Right, right. So, right. Yeah. so she was trying not to be found out in Exactly. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean Jane was saved in part because the husband uh, or the slave master, right? I mean, was gone for long periods with the Civil War. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty cool. It's pretty interesting. I mean, yeah. it really does sort of show you that shift in perspective of the story changes when you think a right. person is one race and then you realize they're another race. Right. They never change how they looked. Just change how people see them, but it changed the whole perspective right. on how you see everybody else that's right. that's connected to them. Yeah. And then also there's this, you know, when it comes to passing, there's this way of thinking about passing as always a potential catastrophe. Right. That when you're passing, to be discussed, especially in this period of time, right. To be discovered right. is to have the you know the, the floor drop out and right. fall right. to your death. You know? Yeah, Every literally sometimes I'm assuming. Yeah. So, yeah. So I want to get back to the issue of colorism though, because I think it's especially gendered in this book in really appropriate ways, right? Like in ways that we see reflected in the literature around mm-hmm. um, colorism. Um, both in the United States and actually in any country where we see African diaspora. Mm-hmm. Um, so the um, I don't have pages because I'm reading on a Kindle. So this is an experiment for me. We'll see how it works. But when Jane first introduces uh, Catherine Devereaux as mm-hmm. um, as a topic, and I think like actually their um, their conflict, right? This duo. Like actually becomes one of the motivating places where we better understand why Jane is the way she is, right? Mm-hmm. Why she yes. is willing to be a rebel. Yes. Um, and it's partly about like her color, right? Who she, who she is, um, her, you know, like her mom, etc. But it's also about not being Catherine. Yes. Um, so she says Page on the thirteen for those of you who have a book club. Thank you. I, I could say it's three percent. Is that helpful? It's a uh, page twelve of four. Oh no, I can't say it's page twelve. Twelve, I think. We'll see. Um, she says, uh, Catherine is passing light. A body likely wouldn't even know that she was colored unless someone told him. She's the prettiest girl at Miss Preston's, and I figured that's as good a reason as any to hate her. Right, and right above that, she also says, she's one of those girls who makes you question the school's admissions <laughs> criteria. <laughs> With her light skin, golden curls, mm-hmm. and blue eyes, I wonder how, how it was she ended up in the Negro school in the first place. And then I want to get to the bottom of the page because it's not just about, you know, it's the, the layers that go on to the colorism, right? Like the mm-hmm. meanings of the colorism. Um, Catherine and I have been butting heads since I showed up at Miss Preston's School of Combat and not just on account of her being so offensively pretty. <laughs> she is one of those girls that doesn't know when to mind her own business and she's a know-it-all that could try the patience of Jesus Christ himself. I ain't a very good Christian, so you know where that leaves me. <laughs> um, and I really found interesting the way, so like Catherine is uh, positioned as the do good, right? Like she's always gonna follow the rules. She's gonna do the best she can. But also um, classy. 
And classy, exactly. She doesn't have to work hard mm-hmm. at being good. Mm-hmm. Or at least she fits in. that's what Jane thinks. Yeah. She fits yeah. in. Mm-hmm. But fits in at this school of combat for right. black girls, right? right? right. Which right. is kind of interesting to me. Yeah. Right. Well, she's like the um, the golden, literally, the golden, the golden girl, girl of the yeah. class, right? Like, she's yeah. the one. I mean, I think we find out later that um, maybe Jane wouldn't have been, um, like, she's the most skilled in terms of taking down Chambly, but she might not have been placed in that highest sort of level of household because of her um, attitude. Her attitude. She's darker than than uh, Catherine. Um, so yeah, I mean, they're they're definitely um, sort of sort of two opposites, I think. Mm. But it turns out that they're not as much right. as they think, right? You know. Right. But I I love the I think the thing that I love was this um, corset that <laughs> keeps going yes. and how. <laughs> driving Jane crazy yeah. about this corset, right? Like, why do I wear the corset? Then, Take like, the corset off! Right, and then, like, they're compromised and she's wearing a half corset at the end, right? Like, it's just right. a half corset, so, you know, so, um, I guess Catherine, even in the end, sort of, like, uh, preserves some of her sort of femininity, I suppose, you know? Right, but that's a great example, too, right? Because the corset is about preserving femininity, but it's also a, a metaphor for societal rules, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. For being able to let go somewhat, but for still not being able to ignore uh, the expectations of society. Do you think that, I mean, when I think about Catherine as a character, at first you do think of her, um, well, of course, well, I thought of her as like, well, she's totally oppressed by society and doesn't really understand it. But then I start to think, well, there are lots of ways that Catherine seems to be as independent as Jane is Mm -hmm. so that her, like, you know, things about her hair and her beauty or whatever. I mean, is it possible that there's ways we can read her as deploying those things or utilizing those things on her own terms? So that, you know, Jane sort of like, throw away everything that, you know, references beauty and all this kind of stuff and only use it if you need to, you know, like when she makes her pass when they're in Summerland. But Catherine, Catherine actually doesn't want to pass. She doesn't want to use that. Right. She wants to use things like, you know, um, she just wants to live the way that she wants. She says, I don't want to get married. I don't mm-hmm. want to, you know, I want to be independent. I want to see the world. Like Hattie McCrean. I don't, is that a person? Like, I don't know who, oh, I don't there's, know. This, she, there's this part where she says, I want to, I want to live and travel like Hattie McCrean. <laughs> and then Jane says, yes, everyone wants to be like Hattie. And I was like, I don't know. Is that a real person? I don't know. Maybe she was an attendant? I can't remember. I can't remember. Maybe yeah. she's mentioned earlier in the, yeah. the book. I'm not sure, but. I mean, I, I guess in the end, I really like Ka- Me Catherine. Too. Oh, and I yeah. like, yeah, I love their relationship, you know? That's probably one of my favorite things in the book. I feel like they have that, like, heart-to-heart talk at some point, and we find out about sort of Catherine's past, like, right. yes. she's had to deal with men. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I feel like it's less about, like, her wanting to go along with things, but, like, I feel like she has, she had had a much privileged childhood, actually, I think. Right? Didn't she, but didn't she live in the... Um, in the she lived in the house of prostitution yeah, so that's right. yes. okay. yeah so i yeah. feel like yeah. for jane she actually grew up in like what? relative privilege oh right right right, right. so Compared i feel like her to... whole like mm-hmm. i'm gonna you know like take on the world and like let's challenge everything and i was kind of thinking like does it go back to the whole like you know dubois and like um oh, like double uh, no booker t washington versus like oh, right? oh so it's yeah kind of, like, like cast kind of down your buckets about, and all that yeah not exactly, but I feel like just their notion of like how much do you think about assimilating to the system as is, partly because right. you're 
um, you haven't grown up with the kind of privilege that Jane has had. Right. Right. Of like protection and of like, right. So she could be like, mm-hmm. fuck the world. Like, yeah. I'm going to like take it in. Because she hasn't had to actually experience before she went to the school, perhaps, right? So the kind of deprivation mm-hmm. or the kind of challenges that Catherine did, yeah. maybe. Yeah. I, 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 I also think, though, that it's simply that we get Jane's inner world and sure. Jane is a teenager. And she still doesn't actually trust that other people have deep inner worlds, <laughs> right? Um, so by the end, like we see her finally listening to Catherine and understanding, oh, yes. you're not Catherine who I thought you were. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, although there is something very special about Jane, right, in the way that she has this inner world um, that she trusts. And I think that is due to her upbringing, right? Yeah. This privilege she had with a home where she was actually loved, right? Um, in some really problematic ways in part, but like she had love um, and care. And and so that she gets to these spaces, right, where like, um, was it that talk where all these attendants, these are lined up um, and the doctor makes this really arrogant mistake. And so someone starts to turn into a shambler right, right. on the stage. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this very well-heeled crowd is going crazy. And Jane, like all the attendants are being told, you know, just actually get out mm-hmm. and Jane's like no I'm gonna fight the, the right. shambler right. and I'm gonna make sure they don't kill anybody um, so there's something uh, that's very foolhardy and brave about mm-hmm. her yes. mm-hmm. um, that is willing to not uh, that is willing to yeah let go of the system well, sh- in moments yeah also, I found Hattie with grief. You want to know? Oh, yeah. Um, so 363. So she's the dream of every attendant training. <laughs> she was the yeah. first real attendant assigned to Martha Johnson, President Johnson's daughter. <laughs> oh they say God. that she single-handedly killed a horde that tried to swarm the White House back in 69. Whether the story's true or not, it made Hattie famous. She traveled the world after that. Her name made uh, teaching girls how to defend themselves against shamblers and finally mm-hmm. marrying a handsome French duke. What? <laughs> or at least that's how the story goes. <laughs> the moral of the story is Todd doesn't read very closely. <laughs> <laughs> um, Everyone else also forgot that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, okay. right. Well, that's right. I want to. Oh, how much time? Oh, this is crazy. Anyway, uh, I want to just uh, uh, talk a little bit more about Jane because I think what you said is really important, right? I mean, Jane's like, you know, there's all these allusions to um, Tom Sawyer and. By way of Tom Sawyer, I'm going to make an allusion to Huck Finn. Mm -hmm. The way that those two characters sort of um, reject what they believe to be the moral world and Mm -hmm. essentially say, well, if the world's like that, then I'm going to be immoral. Mm -hmm. Right? So they do what they want to do, even if they believe that they're doing the wrong thing. And Jane, like, according to the uh, tenets or criteria of that world, right? right? Jane makes that decision all through her life that I'm going to do this and let the world damn me. That's right. fine. Um, she always says, you know, I, I never watch what I say. I'm always saying the, the wrong thing. I'm always doing the wrong thing, blah, blah, blah. That's just the way I am. That just the Sort of. That I, I mean, there are these couple of moments, remember, when she, like, resorts to kind of talking in a particular way to, like... Well, she's... She right? Does, so I feel like she is, like, yeah. true. But I think... I guess what I'm trying to, to suggest is that, like those um, sort of uh, young rapscallion kind of <laughs> <laughs> characters... Great work. Uh, yes. Um, what... That what they what they do is that they position themselves in opposition to what they believe to be the morally correct world, but they see the flaws in that more mm-hmm. supposedly morally correct world. I mean, Huck Finn, when he's deciding to basically steal Jim, 
away from slavery. He, he understands it as stealing. He understands it as morally wrong. And he, and he says, well, if that's morally wrong, then I guess I'll go to hell because I'm going to help Jim escape. Mm-hmm. And so in that, it's this very sort of uh, uh, ironic moment in which the decision that he makes to do what he feels is right inside of himself, he knows everyone else will see as wrong. And she does that all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's a big, I think that's what makes a part of what makes our character so appealing especially to a teenager mm-hmm. because you feel mm-hmm. like you're in opposition to the world all right. the time right, right? as a right, teenager right, right, right. Right? I love this comparison to Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn so much the voice that we get this narrator is absolutely the rapscallion um, the picaresque mm-hmm. um, a, a, in a way that um, both acknowledges the danger and the violence of the world, but where she kind of skips among it, and we know she's going to survive it. Right. Um, and even at the end, which ends in some ways really ambiguously, it's like, go west, yeah. right. young people, go to California. It might be all shamblers out there. We don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, In chapter 19, there's a moment where she says, I have yet to find a jam I can't get myself out of. Mm-hmm. One day this whole Summerland fiasco will just be an interesting footnote in the story of my life. Mm. So there's definitely this narration that where this whole novel is acknowledged to be um, like child's play for her, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah I She's mean, totally going to get through it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it. and I think you're right. It's the picaresque novel, yeah. right? It's just mm-hmm. like episode after episode of adventure and, you know, danger and you always get out of it, maybe sometimes by the skin of your teeth, but you always get out of it. Yeah. And it's not self-righteous, right? Like, I think that's why you called it so well, Todd. Um, I, later, I just have all these, like, what I love about the Kindle is I have these things I highlight, highlighted, highlit. Highlighted. 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 I don't know. <laughs> I think highlighted. Um, so page 223, there's nothing white folks hate more than realizing they accidentally treated a Negro like a person. <laughs> and I'm like sense of humor yeah. right but calling it like it is mm-hmm. so that great insight too, yeah. right right yeah. so crystal um so we do have to wrap up but i feel like you wanted to jump in maybe earlier or something did you want to i don't remember okay okay yeah because we are terrible yeah <laughs> no no i don't remember but i think what i was thinking of as we um in this episode is thinking about and maybe we can pick it up when we uh, discuss the next book is thinking about black girlhood and the mm-hmm. fact that both of these books, um, the protagonists are young black girls and what the authors are trying to say about that. Mm-hmm. Is there one more thing you want yes, to say? Yes, this is super important <laughs> and I forgot to mention it earlier, but I was looking yes. at my notes. And, um, you, you mentioned about how Justina Ireland has been like a tireless, they keep telling mm-hmm. me to talk closer to the mic, um, has been like a, a, a tireless kind of like warrior in, in social media uh, about um, diversity, diversity and social literature. Yeah. Right. And um, I remember I was doing a little bit of research about that and I read somewhere where she basically said, you know, um, about this uh, one particular book called The Continent by Kiera Drake, which she was really tough on. And I think actually mm-hmm. they pulled the book, the publisher pulled the book mm-hmm. um, off of a, basically a campaign mm-hmm. uh, by Justina Ireland. And she said, I'm not trying to tell writers what to write, but if you're going to write other people's experience or identity, you need to know what you're talking about. You need mm. to do the research and know what you're talking about. So um, I thought it was really interesting that I mentioned that I was reading this book to someone in my department who teaches Native American literature. Mm. And mm. she said to me, I have heard 
that there are problems with that book. I would agree. So, yeah. So, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I found uh, some Twitter threads mm-hmm. that were pretty vicious on this book oh. about the appropriation of the boarding school yeah. um, mm. plot point. Yeah. And then the fact that there are very, there's only one native yes. character right. and he's not a very prominent character and he barely yes. speaks. And so we And it's a stereotypical treatment yeah. of right? Yes. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. I think yeah. we don't have time to talk about it too much here, but I think um, if you're reading this book or certainly if you're teaching this book, yes. reading it with students, that that's something you should look into because I think that they're you know, Justina Ireland has to play by the rules that she that she that's sets right. up too, yeah. you know. So she's yeah. she's oh, she's open to that same kind of criticism. Yeah, and I think I would say, I guess that was my disappointment because I was kind of hoping for actually much more robust kinds of explorations of what an alternate history might look like mm. where right, Native Americans and African Americans and other people of color might have worked together to kind of build a different kind of community because I think part of this whole like let's go west it's like you're still taking native land right right so how do we like think outside of the nation that we have because the nation that we have is based on stolen land right yes um so anyway um but with that with with that in mind I was also thinking about kind of this book being basically a, a zombie book and wondering you know why make this a zombie book I think that the, I think that speaks to kind of capitalizing off of this kind of trend right now mm-hmm. in pop culture where there's lots of zombie things making lots of money. And so when we think about the possibilities of creating something radical mm-hmm. off of the zombie genre. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, so. Are you saying that it, it isn't quite as radical as it could be? Like there's some way that it Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, and although my the the question I ended with was about black girlhood, um, I think in that moment she's doing something kind of different and radical Mm -hmm. by making black girls kind of the heroes in this book. Right. Right. But in terms of this, as we were saying, the world she creates. Maybe it would have been more radical to have black people and other people of color together in as opposed to just having the zombies in the book. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, you know, right. so, yeah. um, but I think Black Girl Hold is a good place to sort of stop off on this episode because you didn't even have to wait that long to hear our voices again because we will be coming up with our second episode on young adult literature and that book we'll be discussing is Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give. Um, so maybe we'll continue our discussion perhaps of uh, black girlhood Uh, not perhaps we definitely will so (laughs) thank you all for listening and i also want to note that this is kind of our first time we're using some new equipment brought to us by carlton college so thank you thank you but also if you hear you know i don't know we're still figuring it out so we appreciate your patience thank you for listening we're doing our best best. thank you for listening and if you have comments about this or any of our other episodes you can find us on Facebook especially, so drop us a note and let us know what you're thinking. Please put a comment on our Facebook page. Please. Has anyone done that yet? Um, no, or review us. Yes, yes. Review us on all the things, on iTunes and all the places where our podcast. We got a lot of people listening to our show, but we need to know how much you like it, or if you hate it, that's fine too. Yes, just tell us. I hope you like it. All right. If you hate us, just tell us. (laughs) Personally. (laughs) Personally. All right. Thank you all, and see you all soon, or listen to us soon. I don't know. Whatever. Bye. Bye. (laughs) This first episode of our two-episode series on young adult literature was recorded at Cahoots Coffee Bar 
St. Paul, Minnesota on Selby Avenue. The next episode, part two, will be available immediately because we're recording it right after we get finished with this one. So check it out, and we hope you like it, both of them. See ya. And if the hippies and the yippies... And if the hippies and the yippies... And if the hippies and the yippies...